You're listening to Hear Arizona. Addressing issues, empowering our community. I'm going to tell you about the same person in two ways. For way number one, imagine you're reading a Facebook post or a tweet. It says... A Vietnamese artist who immigrated to the United States shows through her work that she doesn't quite feel Vietnamese or American. She's kind of stuck between two places. And here is way number two. When Anh Thuy Nguyen was 22, she left her home in Vietnam to travel on a... Uh, tourist visa to the United States to visit my sister to attend her wedding. Okay. She was the only one lived here. She was a refugee. My brother was too, but he passed away. Her siblings were two of the 130,000 Vietnamese people who fled to the U.S. at the end of the Vietnam War in 1975. And that war had taken a toll on Antwi's family and spread them across the world. When she reached her sister, she found... Anyway, she lived here by herself. She's really strong, but it's, it's messed up. Like, we're really screwed people up, like, badly. <laughs> My mom went through it. She saw, like, Vietnamese people got hanged up by the VC or somebody just, like, blow each other uh-huh. up. And so Antwi came to the U.S. as a part of what she thought would be a vacation. But she saw what her sister was going through, and she decided to stay with her, to stay in the U.S. for good. And because of her visa status, she wasn't allowed to go back home for seven years. She misses Vietnam. 13, 14 years. I haven't been there. I miss it so much. I'm not part of that community, and I might not be this community. I'm like, yeah, that's space in between. Like, between one and zero, I'm stuck right in that space. <laughs> Now she lives in Arizona, and she's an artist. I'm speaking with her at the Tucson Museum of Art, where her work is a part of their 4x4 exhibition, featuring four Arizona artists, including Nazafarin Lotfi, who we heard from last episode. But Antwi's art is about feeling stuck in between, in between a new home and an old home, and not quite fitting in in either place. Yeah, that's not a great feeling, but apparently a lot, a lot of us, a lot of of immigrants share the same feeling like that, too. The we, stuck in between both we places? Stop. We stop. Yeah. We stop. No, no way want to take us. Just think about all the refugee people. They want to come. There's a group of people want to take them in. That group of people like, no, you can't. We don't usually give a lot of thought to the people around us. We might get a little information and make a quick judgment. That information might come only from a name tag, brief glance, or social media post, like in way number one of telling the story. But Antwi wants people to know that someone you might have dismissed or just categorized as different, their story from their perspective might be... I, I just want to have a peaceful life so I can work, I can educate my kids so they can be better off, right? That's why I leave my country because there war zone and people are trying to kill me, rape my, my, my daughters and beat up my mom. So they have to leave. But... What do you hope people like, think and feel when they see this? empathy. I think it's really important. So just understand a little bit. Yeah. Like what that feels like, what you're describing, the Mm in-between. If you felt more connected to Antwi and her story after hearing it told in way number two, you might have something in common with a two-year-old. My name is Melody Bukazar Dawkins. I have a PhD in developmental psychology. So in that work, I was really interested in infant social cognitions. Dr. Bukazar Dawkins and other researchers like her are interested in babies and toddlers because they might be able to tell us something about our kind of original default human settings. 
how we think before we've had all this life experience to influence our biases and judgments. She and others in the field use things like puppet shows showing little stories and track things like how long little humans stare at certain objects to determine their concerns or preferences. Specifically, Dr. Bukazar Dawkins is interested in looking at how their sense of fairness develops, basically examining our attitudes toward even income disparities or attitudes toward how we think about people who are marginalized. So just looking at it from baby's perspective, basically. She did a study recently looking at how two-year-olds viewed two hypothetical people represented by dolls. All the kids knew about them is that one had many more toys, more resources than the other. We did observe that some toddlers had a specific preference for individuals with more resources. But then they told the toddlers a few simple things about that person with fewer resources. So we would tell them about, you know, their backgrounds or their families, what they would like to do if they have a pet. And when they did that, they found the biases toward the person with more resources disappeared. The study is not yet complete and the results are preliminary, but they seem to show that the little two-year-olds went through something like what you, listener to this podcast, just went through. They got a superficial introduction to a person, about something about them, but then they heard a little bit about their story. They got the chance to understand them, to feel what they feel. This little shift in mindset has big consequences, and it's just the kind of thing that art can prompt in us. I think it's a very nice parallel to draw just highlighting the power of arts to humanize people and kind of broaden people's horizons and also just thinking about something new, reimagining something, maybe reimagining a new world. All of that is possible within confines of the arts and creativity. On this episode of the State of the Arts podcast, art, empathy, and feeling at home safe enough to be authentic, to be yourself. So why is empathy so important? And what exactly is empathy really? I think we as adults especially, our autopilot setting is to determine how someone is different from us and how that might be a threat to our survival or our group's survival. And empathy begs us to ask the question of how are we similar first? This is Dr. Laura Jean Maruzio. She's a researcher, school psychologist, and associate lecturer at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. And she's interested in empathy because boosting it in our society has the potential to fix a lot of our worst problems, like those rooted in prejudice and racism. Often people see things like xenophobia as a solution to their feelings of feeling unsafe. But if we can recognize that all humans, regardless of their race, ethnic background, country of residence, if we can realize that all humans feel unsafe at times, we can be less likely to react and ostracize. And so that little nudge from seeing someone as different, as an immigrant from Vietnam, to similar, as a person who loves their family and struggles with not fitting in, that nudge makes a world of difference. On the one hand, it's as simple as a perspective shift. All we need is more empathy. But on the other hand, it's a perspective shift, which is like one of the hardest things for humans to do is to question their natural emotional defaults, challenge them and work to change them. But the good news, 
many studies have proven that empathy can be taught. It can be broken down into its specific components and trained. And so in her work, Dr. Maruzio has set out to find ways to boost empathy, especially in kids. And her strategy is art. She and her colleagues worked with kindergarten and first grade classes, leading 20-minute arts classes twice a week. They'd have the kids do group projects and have conversations, like one where they draw the happiest day of their life and explain it to each other. For one of them, it was seeing the Black Panther with their dad. That was a really special day. For another one of them, it was getting their puppy. For one of them, it was getting a donut. Like that was the only information. It was just getting a donut was the happiest day of their life. So they were all slightly different. So kind of giving an opportunity to connect emotionally over this feeling of happiness, but also perspective taking in realizing that Everyone can feel happy for different reasons. Dr. Maruzio's team watched the kids closely, marking down times when they engaged in empathetic behavior, like helping each other out or listening closely to one another by nodding their heads. And over the weeks, they quantified the development of their empathy. And basically what we saw was that although all kids did not have the same trajectory, overall there were increases in empathy learning for all of the groups, which was really just encouraging and incredible and exciting. Art is like its own language, and it's a language that seems to have a unique ability to communicate emotions and cause people to feel empathy. Ann Tui told me that before she moved to the U.S. at 22. I didn't know anything about artwork. I came to learn about it. I came to be a practitioner of it, and it changed me. It changed me to become who I am today. It changed her so much because before she found the language of art, she didn't really know how to truly express herself. How the visual language usually helped me to be able to articulate the feeling that I get, which is in my cultures, you don't really talk about your feeling. You just internalize it. But of course, art isn't just beneficial for people that do it, like Antui and the kids. It also boosts empathy when we take it in and talk about it. When we consume art, we're inherently asking questions like, who made this painting? What made them make this painting? Um, and it's when we can make that connection between what the artist is feeling and producing and what we have experienced that art is typically meaningful to us. So absolutely, the cons consumption of art can facilitate empathy. It just so happens that Dr. Maruzio has, in addition to psychology, studied interior design. So I asked her a question on a slightly different topic. Can we get this empathy-inducing benefit of art if we aren't completely comfortable in the space that we see it? If we're in an environment where our emotional safety is threatened, we're unable to access our higher order thinking and do things that are productive or involve connection with other people because we're so focused on maintaining homeostasis physically and maintaining our our sense of survival. Say, taking a cue from Antwi's art, we feel like we don't fit in or completely belong at the museum. We don't feel at home there. Dr. Maruzio says this could prevent us from getting much of anything out of the experience. And museums, it turns out, have been thinking hard recently about this very thing. I'm walking up to the ASU Art Museum. It's a late May afternoon, hot and sunny, and as I walk up to the ASU Art Museum's entrance, I notice something right away. And slung over these decorative grates on the side of the entryway are these big banners with text. We have met the enemy, and he is us, and she is us. 
I walked down into the museum's underground entrance through a large metal door. And there I meet the museum's director, Mickey Garcia. Come on into my office. Thank you for waiting. I really appreciate it. I follow her into her cool air conditioning office full of books, Native American pottery, and little printouts of pieces for future exhibitions. In this room, she and her colleagues plan what's next for the museum. And recently, they've been focused on a problem that's arguably plagued museums since they were invented in Europe. A problem many say persists to this day. It's just not working now. We, we know um, we can look at attendance across the country. We can look at boards across the country. We can look at leadership across the country. We are not serving all the people. And part of their plan to make change happen is a one-year-old ambitious initiative called Pilot Projects. Pilot Projects is a series of artworks, interventions, and public programs that began last year in the midst of the pandemic, as well as a reaction to the murders of George Floyd and so many others. Part of the initiative is new exhibitions, like a collection of text-based art, which includes the banner I saw on my way in. But it goes beyond that and goes really to the core of what a museum is and how it interacts with its audience. We thought, let's shake it loose. Let's not be a standard status quo institution all the time. Let's be more flexible. Let's let more voices in. There was one particular uh, social media uh, account that's called Change the Museum and uh, where staff anonymously started posting all of the harms that museums had done to themselves, to them, or to audiences. And it was a real reckoning. It's been a widespread reckoning of the fact that museums uh, participate in systemic institutional racism. So we at the ASU Art Museum, uh, I am a woman of color, I'm a Latina, I've uh, part of the reason I came to ASU is because of its mission of inclusion. Um, I'm, my life's work has really been about reimagining what museums can be for more people. She said museums have traditionally assumed the role of expert teacher, an authority that bestows its great knowledge on its patrons. What if we actually created vehicles for audiences to come in and share their lived experiences? along with our knowledge, and that we would then co-create meaning together. We want to shift the conversation and the tenor of museum. This belongs to, to you all, the students at ASU University, but also the people of Arizona. I want people to come in here to know that they own this. This is theirs. This summer, they're preparing for a museum-wide exhibition on art and the history of incarceration. And instead of closing to do that work in the dark, like a museum might typically do, they'll be offering tours to anyone who wants one to give people a chance to see. How does the museum go up? The artist will be here. The crew is going to be painting walls and uh, the curators will be hanging. And as we're doing that, we're inviting audiences to come in and participate so that we can demystify you know, the process. Dr. Melody Bukazar-Dawkins now works for Slover Lynette Audience Research. She's the researcher who studied babies that we heard from at the start of the episode. But recently she studied... Culture and community during times of crisis, so during the pandemic. Her colleagues there did a huge survey of 120,000 people and found, unsurprisingly, that people were aching to get back out into the world and connect with their friends and community once it's safe. And they wanted cultural organizations to be a part of that, to be active in bringing the community together in an inclusive way that welcomes everyone. We also wanted to see if different racial and ethnic groups were 
affected by the pandemic, especially in relation to the arts. Then we did see some differences across groups, and some of them were really unique to Black and African American participants. They wanted to know why, so they launched a follow-up project where they did these long interviews with Black Americans across the country. We talked to people about what makes a, an institution such as a museum really trustworthy and welcoming. They found that, by and large, the Black Americans they spoke with enjoyed museums and felt comfortable there. But they did have some reservations about them and other cultural institutions, depending on how welcoming and trustworthy they seemed. And they found that the way they determine this trustworthiness is they look for cues. A visible cue would be, let's say that you go to a museum and you see a lot of workers who are frontline workers and they're all black. And then you see people who are in higher positions and they're all white. That made a space not welcoming because it showed that um, where black people are valued. One theme and word that kept coming up in my conversation with Dr. Bukazar Dawkins about these findings was authenticity. We asked people about what they think about the Black Lives Matter statements, museums or other institutions post during this time. Does that make them trustworthy? And across the board, everybody said no. They just said, you know, show and not tell. So, who was in your board? Who was making decisions? Are your workers happy? Is your place welcoming? Are, when I go there, are people nice? Are people saying hi? Are people offering me help? Dr. Bukasar Dawkins said that the people they spoke with did make distinctions between different kinds of spaces based on their various cues. There were predominantly white spaces, black spaces, and diverse spaces. Well, one example for as to why a predominantly black space is more comforting is because if you are in a predominantly black space and somebody is rude to you, you don't have to wonder if they're racist or not. You don't have to wonder what was going on there. You can just think, okay, this person was rude, so I can move on. But if the same incident happens in a predominantly white space, you have to constantly do these mental gymnastics as to the motivation behind it. Again, authenticity, being honest, feeling welcome, and feeling free to be yourself was at the center of the findings. A black space is more comforting is because people, black people, can be their authentic selves in that place. At least this is what the participants told us. So authenticity was really important and people did not want to be the representation of blackness, which is kind of forced upon you in predominantly white spaces. I'm lucky to feel comfortable at the ASU Art Museum, free to be authentic and reflect on the work. In that text banner I mentioned that said, we have met the enemy and he is us and she is us. It's by Tempe-based artist Kristen Bauer and it came with a placard describing the history of the phrase. The original version, we have met the enemy and they are ours, was first coined by an American naval officer after defeating a British fleet in the War of 1812. The line was famously parodied in a 1970 Earth Day poster, which stated, we have met the enemy and he is us, pointing out that the blame for pollution and environmental destruction is on humankind. It reminded me of one of Anne Thuy's video works on display at the Tucson Art Museum that shows her boxing against air in a Vietnamese dress. 
The idea, she told me... I'm fighting myself in a way that, and to the point that I realize that I'm good at what I'm doing, but it's actually really bad what I'm doing. Everyone can empathize with the experience of beating yourself up. It doesn't feel good, but sometimes it can be hard to avoid or stop. The banner points to the fact that all of our species' worst problems come from the same kind of internal conflict, humanity fighting against itself. And like Antwi, we're unfortunately really good at it. But as we heard from Dr. Maruzio, sometimes a simple perspective shift can go a long way towards stopping the fighting. And sometimes art can prompt that shift, as long as we're open to it and feel comfortable with the art and the space we find it in. And at ASU, another part of demystifying the museum is demystifying the art world itself, which is easy to see as pretentious and exclusionary. Mickey Garcia wants to expand our preconceptions of what art worthy of being in a museum is, to include things like sound art, food art, you know, social practice. I think people are really intimidated by art, and they think that art is a beautiful painting on a wall. Um, but I like to compare art to like jazz. It's like sometimes you don't know what it's about, but you can feel it. It can move you. It can inspire certain memories and trigger certain things about you. Dr. Bukazar Dawkins again. People were getting a little tired of kind of trauma stories, just trauma after trauma after trauma, negativity, slavery, police violence. Not that people didn't want to talk about the, these things or think about these things, but then that's not what blackness is all about or black culture is all about. There's so much more to what it means to be black than racism. So people really wanted that authentic, again, that word authentic, authenticity, authentic representation of blackness and stories told by black people for black people. In the black community, uh, I hit a lot of jazz clubs, blues clubs, and a lot of black culture. Everybody was cheerful, constantly, you know? And so there's a ton of joy within our community. This is Willie Bonner, another Arizona-based artist whose work is on display at the Tucson Museum of Art's 4x4 exhibition. His work is... Connected to my identity as a um, black American. Uh, my purpose of being here had a tragic story behind it, but uh, we're making a positive out of that. So there's that transformation there also in the work. Willie's paintings are filled with vibrant technicolor splotches that form larger images if you step back and look at them for a few seconds. Kind of like seeing figures in clouds. But step closer and details reveal themselves. Little symbols and phrases like... See the star David over here. Mm -hmm. That star used to be on the prayer mats of uh, the Zulu tribe. The Venus of Wardoff, then the guy wearing a hoodie, and then the stereotype of the black guy with the watermelon. And then over there is like the quilt patterns yeah. to uh, uh, the Underground Railroad. The stories and symbols in Willie's paintings span all of human history. He also sees art as a kind of language, the oldest language known to man. You know, because uh, the oldest art was found in Africa. And it, so it, that's where the humanity began to tell the story. So like when you look at the earliest work or art of man, etched in the stone or either bone or wood, 
It was about communicating in the best way they can because they didn't have words then. So uh, sign and, and language of art have always uh, guided us out of the dark into the light. And so as I get older, you know, the lights get brighter. I'm no longer guessing or romanticizing about things because I have the experience now about just living. Willie takes all this history and his own life experience and swirls it together to show how, in some ways, things haven't changed as much as we might think. When you look at uh, unarmed people being shot down in the street and killed, and then you look at how during the period of time when they brought us here, uh, the slave catchers would do the same type of treatment, you know, that your life means nothing to anybody. And then you see that there's a parallel that things has a long ways to go still. To compare present with past, we could develop a future that is not so valid. The bright colors, symbols, and powerful scenes in Willie's paintings stimulate all parts of the brain. People call art moving, and looking at this work, that word makes sense. It gives me a little nudge inside, a slight perspective shift. What do you hope like, people will take away from this exhibition? I hope they open up their heart and ask themselves where they stand, and are they willing to do anything about making the change? Most people of color didn't create racism. You know, and it's a man-made um, virus. And it's on them to uh, fix it themselves. We can't fix it for them. You just listened to an entire podcast episode on the arts. So obviously this issue carries some weight for you. To learn more about the organizations we profiled and the issues they face, visit our website, hearearizona.org. That's H-E-A-R, Arizona. Tell all your friends to check us out too. They can search for Hear Arizona on their favorite podcast listening app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, NPR One, Spotify. And since we're all about empowering our community, we want you to be a part of the conversation. Follow Here Arizona on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This podcast series is made possible by a grant from the Virginia G. Piper Charitable Trust. Here Arizona is a production of the Division of Public Service at Rio Salado College, which includes Sun Sounds, Spot 127, KBOC, and KJZZ. Special thanks to the Tucson Museum of Art and the ASU Art Museum for their help with this episode. The music in this episode was by me and other local artists, Bob Rabbit, Phoenix Afrobeat Orchestra, and Dylan Smock. This episode was produced, written, directed, and hosted by me, Anthony Wallace. Linda Pastori is our executive producer. Hi, this is Scott Bork from Here Arizona Podcasts. Since you're still listening, you're obviously a fan of ours. We want to hear more from you. Visit hearearizona.org and take our listener survey. That's H E A R Arizona.org. Thanks for listening.